There is so much uncertainty about everything at work today. I mean, the economy, inflation, pandemics, the list just goes on and on, right? So how do you survive at work, much less create a positive work culture with all of this uncertainty? What if I told you that you can not only survive, but thrive at work today, despite this uncertainty? My guest on this episode of the Work Positive Podcast became obsessed with uncertainty and how we react so negatively to it. She wanted to discover why so many of us let unpredictability become an obstacle to our success. She set out to find companies with cultures that transform uncertainty into powerful growth opportunities. And boy, did she ever. Lots of them. How do they do it? We discovered in the next 30 minutes her nine-step formula for making uncertainty your company's strategic culture advantage. Ready to lean in, listen up, and learn? Then let's do it. Welcome to the Work Positive Podcast with your host, executive coach and culture architect, Dr. Joey Fawcett. Discover strategies and tactics that work positive as Dr. Joey talks with industry leaders who create a positive work culture that attracts top talent and reduces team turnover. Discover how you can create a work positive culture that increases productivity and profits. Here's your host, Dr. Joey. Work Positive Nation, help me welcome to this episode of the Work Positive Podcast, Meredith Elliott Powell. Meredith, welcome to the Work Positive Podcast. Thank you. I am looking forward to being here and looking forward to this conversation. Oh, I am too, because you right now are in the neck of the woods where my family and I lived, hiking the Appalachian Trail and all sorts of beautiful mountains in Western North Carolina. So thank you for sharing with us from lovely Western North Carolina. Thank you. Yeah, I am. I am blessed to live in Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah, it's a gorgeous neck of the woods, gorgeous neck of the woods. So the name of your book is Thrive. And in the introduction, I introduced people to your notion that uncertainty became an obsession of yours. Yes. Why did uncertainty become an obsession for you, Meredith? Well, because everybody, you know, if you if we can go back to 2018 and 19, um, before we ever heard of COVID, before we ever thought about the things that we were dealing with today, everybody, the economy was running hot. Everybody was doing incredibly well, seeing unprecedented growth. Mm-hmm. But every business owner I talked to was saying, but oh, this uncertainty is if we were all waiting for the ball to drop and we believed that when the ball would drop, it would be the end of our success. And I just started to think, why does uncertainty always have to be negative? And what if you could shift your mindset around that? What if you believed that even in your darkest hour, your best opportunity was just on the other side? How far could you go and what could you accomplish? So that's where my obsession became is I wanted to find people, organizations, businesses, leaders who had actually done that. It's almost like we... We couldn't enjoy success or we can't enjoy success of any kind without constantly looking over our shoulders, right? To thinking, when's the other shoe going to drop? And and that's a matter of mindset. Yeah, it's very much a matter of mindset. In fact, our research revealed that when even when times are good, when people gather together, they will spend more time focused on the things that they're worried about rather than focusing on the things that are working for them. And it's that literal, you said, mindset, that literal shift of where you put your time and your energy that determines how you navigate 
your best times as well as your biggest challenges. Yeah. So why this lust for the negative? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. we're talking on the Work Positive podcast after all. So, you know, what what is it about the negative that magnetizes our conversations, Meredith? I, you know, I, I haven't really gotten um, up under that other than the fact that I feel like we, to some degree, have always been like that. But I feel like in today's place, we are conditioned to think negatively because mm. most of the messages we get are negative. Mm. Most of the messages are focusing on the things that we cannot control or the things, or they're even slanted to sound worse than they are. So I think we're a little bit, um, we're a little bit more programmed that way. The other is that, you know, positive takes a little effort and it takes a little bit of work. You know, it's positive to be healthy. It's positive to have good relationships. It's positive to have a positive workplace culture, but that takes effort. It's a little easier to sit home on my couch and complain about the fact that my, you know, employees just don't do a good job mm. rather than have to roll up my sleeves and be the type of leader that creates an environment where people want to do. So I, I think a little bit of it is we're a little bit lazy and it's a little easier to find something that's wrong rather than to create something that is right. Mm. And it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, particularly yes. when I'm shifting the responsibility blame, if you will, to, you know, you can't find good help these days or whatever other cliche that you want to throw out there, right? That's negative. And boy, people just love dogpiling on a negative conversation. To your point about messaging, if it bleeds, it leads is a mantra of journalism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the bloodiest stories are right up front, head head and shoulders above the rest of the newscast. And if you still can pay attention at the end of the newscast, there might be a warm and fuzzy, but it definitely requires a movement away from that lowest common denominator in the human experience to seek to level up and to move forward. So when you wrote the book Thrive, you discovered nine steps for how we can level up and really make this paradigm shift. It all starts and stops in your head, right? Yes. Familiarize us with those nine steps and let's do it through the lens of okay, I'm, I'm a human resources leader or I'm a leader in my company or I own the business, one of those three positions. And I'm talking to top talent that I want to attract to my company, or I'm working with my current teams because I want to keep the best, right? I want to reduce my team turnover. So as we walk through these nine steps together, together Meredith, help us understand it through that attraction factor as well as the retention factor. Yeah, a great, great way to phrase it. Um, you know, attraction and retention. Number one, the organizations that have a plan for uncertainty and can include their team members in that plan are going to be the ones that attract as well as retain top talent. One of the reasons I believe that we have so much attrition or it's difficult to attract employees is because in the marketplace, you're just sitting there waiting for something to happen to you. You know the marketplace <laughs> is uncertain. So maybe your company will merge. Maybe they'll be acquired. Maybe they'll restructure. And employees just sit there and go, why should I even try? Hmm. So I always say to the leaders that I work with, address uncertainty, have a plan for uncertainty, let people know, you know, where you are headed, you know, where you are going, you understand how to navigate it, and then give them a part in it. If you do that, 
you are giving people the one thing they want in the face of uncertainty, and that is some level of control. You cannot give them a guarantee, but you can give them action. And action dissipates fear. And if people's fear is dissipated, they'll engage, they'll stay. They're finding something with your company. They're not finding someplace else. So that's my number one is that you have to be out there in front saying, we got this. We're not afraid of uncertainty. We got a plan for it. Yeah. And to your point, uh, my friend, Bob Johansson, futurist, talks about this uncertainty and (laughs) certainty is not the antidote to uncertainty, which is what you just said. It's clarity. Yes. And so you're providing that way forward. You're saying, look, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we're in this together. So we're collaborating and we're communicating that collaboration in such a way that it clarifies and provides that confidence in the face of fear. I love it. Yes. That closes the back door. it, It completely closes the back door. It makes me, you know, again, I really can't, you know, I'm, I'm 60 years old. And when I grew up, I believed that if I graduated from high school, got a job, that job would be there. And if I didn't cause any problems, I could probably get promoted and retire there. (laughs) No employee, no matter their age, believes that anymore because it isn't true. Even if you believe that into your bones in in your business, you cannot guarantee that. And Mm -hmm. with guarantee off the table, we have to put something else back in its place. Mm -hmm. And what people want is skin in the game. They want to help you. They want to say, we don't know what's happening either, but can we work with you to do that? Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you are going to close the back door and you are going to attract great talent. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, that's really where it begins. But, you know, we talked about mindset a bit and the mindset is the very first step. We call it in the book, we call it having a relentless vision. And Mm. I, this isn't a vision that you did in a strategy session and you hung on a wall. This is a vision that you, the leader, whether you're HR, whether you're frontline personnel, whether you're the CEO, in fact, all of you need to be talking about this vision constantly, helping people understand where you're headed and where you're going. I think one of the most fascinating things that I discovered from the book was in the face of uncertainty, success is not logical. It is not logical at all. It did not Mm. belong to the company with the best leaders, the best resources, the most money, the right geographic location. It belonged to the organization that had, I'll use your, your, um, your term, clarity, as to where they were headed and where they were going. And the reason is because the mind will find what it focuses on. If your team focuses on the reasons they cannot be successful, they can have everything going for them and they will not be (laughs) successful. If you as the leader can focus them on why you are going to increase market share and why you are going to be relevant, why you're this, everybody's mind will find a way to get there. Right. Oh, exactly. And that's the role of leadership is to provide yes. that clarity of vision without necessarily certainty around the how. Yes. Because as you said, we'll find the how and we'll respond to the current market conditions because frankly, a year from now, I don't know what the market I don't conditions either. are going to be and how I can program for that. So I love that vision with clarity is the first step. How about step two? Step two is the responsibility of leadership so much, and that is to condition the team for change. Um, you know, change is like a muscle. And the more you work it, the more you think about it, the more you um, train for it, the easier um, change becomes. I talk about in the book the fact that we all know change is coming, but we wait for change. One of the biggest 
uh, terms that drives me crazy in our space is managing change. If you are managing change, you're behind. You yes. already missed it. Change you is managing predict- you if you think you're managing yes. change. <laughs> so you need to predict it. And we use a little tool in the book called a skeptic where we're just working with a team and get your team talking about how society is changing, how the industry is changing, how technology is changing. And what do you need to be doing now to prepare for that? What happens is the team gets used to change. They're a part of change. They're predicting what's coming, not feeling they're sitting there like a duck waiting for change to happen. Yeah, really. So you have to train them for change. Mm, yeah. And really, as you said, conditioning them to think about change more, which lowers the resistance to change, lowers the fear around change. Hey, we collaborated and had a conversation about this. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but we see it all around us. So how can we respond rather than react to that change? Because if you wait to react, change just rolled over you. Yeah. And again, I just can't stress enough that in most organizations, people are sitting there waiting for what leadership is going to do to them. Yes. And, and you've got to involve them in that process. Mm. And, you know, we just say, look, we don't know what is coming, but we are all Mm. going to be in, in Olympic shape for change. (laughs) And, and therefore people feel empowered. Strategy number three is um, competition becomes collaboration. And that means within the walls of your organization, um, but outside the walls of your organization within your industry, as well as across other industries. Once you identify the changes that are coming, the question isn't what should you do to solve those challenges? It should be who should you be working with? Who could we join forces with? Because it's not that you can't solve your own problems. You can, but time, energy, resources, speed is everything. And it is through collaboration that you um, that you thrive in uncertainty. Oh, exactly. And the, the heights of success are so much greater when we collaborate. Now, it gets a little messy sometimes and it might sure. feel inefficient or clunky. But wow, the outcomes are just huge. And the relationship credibility that you achieve while you collaborate prepares you for the next step. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The. um you know, the strategy number four is one I think that is really going to resonate with you because working in um, in workplace culture, it's everything. But it is um, one of the tough, toughest things you've got to do in the middle of uncertainty is make a decision. I mean, how do you know where to put time, energy, resources when you have no idea what's coming at you? Mm. But every company that I interviewed made decisions exactly the same way, and they made them according to their core values. They use them like a litmus test. If it aligned with their core values, it was right for them. If it didn't align with their core values, they let it go. Now that takes, that is so simple to say, but you have to understand (laughs) that every decision has to be made that way. Meaning the leaders you promote have to align. The clients you work with have to align. The products you sell have to align. But when you do that, There is an energy that resonates within Mm. your organization that will guide you through even the most challenging waters. And resonates is the right word because it's like you're harmoniously vibrating around that same value. And, And so you're able to get into the flow faster. You're able to, again, achieve more. So Meredith Elliott Powell is my guest on this episode of the Work Positive Podcast. We're talking about her nine steps for you to thrive in the face of uncertainty. And just in case you haven't looked around lately, things may be uncertain. (laughs) 
I'm uncertain of when you're listening to this podcast, but anyway, so step one is vision. Step two is change. Step three, collaboration. Step four is a values alignment. What's the fifth out of nine steps, Meredith? Fifth is my favorite strategy because the fifth is all on how you can make money, even in the face of the biggest uncertainty, even when the bottom falls out of the economy. But how you grow in the face of uncertainty is different than how you grow when the market is is certain. You've got to grow from the inside out. Strategy number five is secure your base. It is by listening to the problems that your current customers are having that you will find your path to growth and profitability. Mm -hmm. It is not the products and services people are buying from you. It is the solution that you have. And when the marketplace shifts, so do the problems with your that your customers are facing people will choose you because you understand them not because they understand you and empathy becomes a huge competitive it's advantage right here but huge. You, but you can in the midst of that uncertainty say i get it yes <laughs> dealing with the same thing so here's a solution right and you can yes. name the ways you get it yeah Strategy um, number uh, six is build your network. It will change your life. I love the fact that we are living in a high-tech world that I can sit home and Google everything until my heart is content. But at the end of the day, it is the connections that that will pull you um, through. I always say to my audiences, every time you look around a room or enter a room, you've got to realize you are one connection away from somebody who can solve any problem you have, Mm. help you achieve any goal, but you have to connect with them. And that came through so loud and clear with the companies that, um, you know, that, that we interviewed the power of the network. Mm. Well, and that's how you and I got connected. Yes. uh, Dave Sanderson, Larry Levine, Mark Hunter. Hugh Hornsby. Yes. We knew those four amazing gentlemen. And so mm. it was just quite simple and easy when Hugh sent an email and connected yes. us, right? It is it is um, you know, it's so important. In the in the book we were we interviewed, we we're talking with Crane and Company that makes the stationery. Sure. And in the middle of, you know, in the middle of some of our biggest wars, they were not able to, um, you know, nobody was writing notes or having parties or things like that. Mm-hmm. But it was through the connections that they were able to convince the U.S. government to print the currency um, on the, you know, the U.S. dollar on crane paper. And wow. that pulled them through those wars. Then the government wanted to save money and was going to put the bid out to to Europe. And it was another connection that Crane and company had that stopped and made it illegal. And it's still illegal this day to print the U.S. dollar on any paper that is um, that is created outside of the United States wow. of America. But yeah. without those connections, that never would have happened. Mm, yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. so important, as my friend Mitchell Levy would like to talk about, to yeah. be likable. Yes. In, in those connections and just seek to have a human experience which makes the relationship transformational as opposed to transactional. I mean, if Crane yes. had just gone in and said, Hey, you right. gotta use our paper, just wouldn't have worked. But because they had established those relationships on a human level, then they were able to say, Hey, it makes more sense to use American made paper. Yeah. And you know, the, um, and networking is becoming such a lost art that <laughs> it's, um, that, that I believe it's a competitive advantage. Um, Mm -hmm. truly a competitive advantage now. And then the next strategy, strategy number seven is right up your, uh, right up your alley. It's about strengthening your team Mm -hmm. is that the one thing that we found when we did the research is that companies that thrive in the, you know, thrive in uncertainty are very selective 
about who they surround themselves with. Mm -hmm. Even in the face of challenging times, you know, imagine you think we've had employment issues. Imagine trying to find men to come to work for you in the middle of the civil war. Mm -hmm. But, um, but those companies are very, they're very, very good to their employees. Mm -hmm. They focus heavily on culture before workplace culture was a term Mm -hmm. and, um, and really realize that the, um, that they're, fastest path to growth and profitability was in the strength of the people that they surrounded themselves with. Wow. Talk about how they attract top talent and the talent just keeps getting stronger, stronger, stronger as they surround themselves with. uh, Yeah. You know, this is so interesting because I think this is a strategy for, you know, 2023, 2024. But when I looked into these companies that have been around since the late 1700s, early 1800s, they were doing a lot of the things that the most progressive companies are doing right now. Mm. They never hired reactively. They always kept a pipeline of who they wanted to come um, to work for them. Mm -hmm. So it was never a reactive strategy. It wasn't, you know, certainly they didn't have Indeed at the time, but Mm. they wouldn't have put an ad out on Indeed. They were looking around their communities as to who they wanted to bring on board. And then, um, and they hired for the value system. Yes. And, you know, back then you had, um, you had, you know, their definition of what an internship, um, would be. It was an apprenticeship back mm-hmm. at the time, but they all, um, were very, very dedicated to apprenticeships and Joey knew exactly who that company was going to pass to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was it, you know, their attraction and retention strategies were very much wrapped together and they were a pro- proactive in retaining. They knew who fit in their culture. They went after them. Now, when they brought them on board, they just decided that for a year, they were a year or two, they weren't going to make any money off of them. They were going to pour their heart and soul into training those people, investing in them. And then it was their succession plans were clear. It was never any doubt. I mean, one of the most fascinating things, there were quite a few businesses that we looked at that when the American revolution broke out, you can imagine some were, you know, some were Tories, some, you know, sympathized with the, um, with, you know, what the Americans were trying to do. Well, if you were a Tory, you had to go back to England, which meant you had to leave your business here. They knew exactly who that business was going to go to. It wasn't, it wasn't a question. The business survived. Mm. Beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to hire around values. You do. You it's can everything. Train skills. I, I, of course, I want some aptitude, but that alignment just secures the belonging and becoming process, which closes that back door and locks it up tightly. Yeah. It's, um, it is, you know, when I look at drama in an, in an organization, every time there's drama, it's a value difference. And mm. the biggest drama problem is a performer. That doesn't match your values. That's where, you know, leaders are like, I can't let them go. They, they yeah. sell too much. They, they do too much. Too much and yeah. yeah. But you're just, you do not understand what they're costing you. Oh, so much more. Because if you look at the attrition underneath that, oh. right. Or as I'm fond of saying, Meredith, it costs too much to do business with some people. <laughs> yes, it did. Uh, absolutely. Completely. I was doing some work for an engineering firm mm-hmm. and we, we graded their customers based on their values. And uh-huh. uh, we drove, we decreased workload and drove profitability by letting go of those customers who would not adapt to the values. We, we, we went out there and made it very clear. This was 
how we were going to do business going forward. And some came on board because they hadn't experienced that from us before. But uh, but when they left, and you can imagine the executive leadership team, you're going to do what? But we we drove profitability because those customers just weren't profitable. But in that gap between firing some clients (laughs) and the others rising up, I mean, there was it's painful. Yeah, there's a whole lot of hard swallowing going on. How do you get through that level of profitability change? Yeah, you know, it's um, number one is that you've uh, you have to have built that trust and credibility with, you know, with the team first. I mean, they had to they had worked with me on some other things before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I've just got to say, we're going to trust the journey. We also just put a time on it. I said, if things do not turn around within the next six months, we'll do this. At the same time, while we've let these clients go, we're going to redevelop and retrain the sales team to go out and look mm-hmm. for more customers that match that value system. And it was mm-hmm. it was kind of those balance of things. But there were a couple, there were a good two months of meetings where I sort of had to put my head on the block and they kind of got to beat me up um, you know, uh, a little bit, but, um, but yeah. I never lost, I had seen it work so many times. I never, mm. I never lost faith in it. I knew mm. that was going to, to come out. I still don't understand the power of values, but I am, the more I learn, the more fascinated uh-huh. I am with, with them and your ability to be successful. Mm. Yes, indeed. Yeah. That's yeah. why you hire for values, both on yes. the customer or client side, as well as the team side. Yeah. So what's the next step? So we got strategies eight and nine that I always wrap together. And strategy eight is, um, I love this one too. As much as the um, condition yourself for change was about looking forward and anticipating yes. the change. Strategy number eight, shed fast and keep moving is about consistently looking back at what you're doing to be productive and what is just keeping you busy? Um, I learned this strategy from Charles, um, from Christian Frederick Martin, the founder of Martin Guitars. And to just cut to the chase, um, uh-huh. he had this unbelievably successful business. Sure. He unfortunately died prematurely and the business passed to his son, who was only 22 um, yeah. at the time. But see, they had a succession plan um, in place. And um, his son asked himself three very important questions when his father died. And they were, what did my father do well? What really worked in the business? And that was easy. It was the quality of the guitar. So Frank said, I'm not going to touch that. We are going to remain the leader in quality. The second question was, what isn't working? What did my father do that worked, but isn't working anymore? Well, when Christian Frederick Martin was alive, the majority of the population was in the Northeast. But since he passed, transportation had come to the United States and and immigrants and people were moving West. So what he realized was he could no longer just sell in the Northeast led to the last question, what do we need to be doing that we're not doing that could take this business to another level? And that was immigration had come, people were moving west. So he moved, um, he started opening businesses across the U.S. He went as far west as Hawaii. And then um, and then he had to pay attention to immigration. They could no longer just make guitars because the immigrants who were becoming a large percentage of the population wanted different instruments. The point of this shed fast and keep moving is you have to realize through no fault of your own, no fault, your strategies are no longer going to work because the marketplace is moving and shifting around you. And you have to take the time, pause, and look back on every quarter and say, what did we do that made us money? What do we need to do more of? 
what isn't working any longer, what no longer serves us, and what should we try that we haven't tried that could take the business to the next level, keeping you productive, letting go of busy. Mm, I love it. I love it. So yeah. those are eight and nine wrapped together. Yeah. Well, nine is rinse and repeat. It's a fluid ah. strategy that's got to be done over and over and over again. Mm. Um, people always say to me, it's nine strategies. Couldn't you have just given me three? But when <laughs> you really, but when you really think about it, they don't take much time. I mean, how mm. long does it take to have a leader talk about the vision? Once a quarter, I want you to take 20 minutes and talk about change. Mm. Collaboration versus competition is a way that you, you know, it's a process. So are values. It's a process. Mm. Secure your base is a process. Build your network is going to maximize any event you've ever participated in. Strengthening your team is a process. Shed fast and keep moving is a few minutes out of a meeting. So it isn't so much a set of things you need to do. It's a way you need to live and run your business. Mm, yeah. My friend, uh, David Friedman, author yeah. of Culture by Design, would talk about it as putting it into the cadence, ritualizing yes. it in, into your business. So everything you described is really a work style as opposed yes. to step one, step two, step three. Yes. We're just integrated as a whole vertically and horizontally into the DNA of the company culture. And boom. You wake up one day and you're thriving, right? Yes, exactly. I love exactly. It. Meredith Elliott Powell is my guest on this episode of the Work Positive Podcast. Uh, Meredith, tell us where we can get more. Obviously, the book is in the show notes. So if you're walking the dog around the Peloton or something, there it is. You can go get it. What about a website we can go to and get more Meredith? Yeah. Yeah, I would love that. Just um, join me at valuespeaker.com. Just the words valuespeaker.com. I am a passionate believer. Build your network. It will change your life. So if you reach out and connect with me, I will connect with you uh, as, as well. Oh, sweet. I love it. Work Positive Nation always wants to know from my guest, Meredith, one thing. So Meredith Elliott Powell, what's your one thing Work Positive Nation can do starting today to create a positive work culture? Yeah, I think the number one thing that you have got to do to create a positive work uh, culture is what we spoke about. It's you have to define and then live by your values. It's been, it's been a while since you updated your values. Go back, make sure that they're right, that they're resonating, and don't hang them on a wall. Bring them into every decision that you make. Make them the way that you do business. That's going to be the most important thing that really, really transcends your workplace culture. Get the values off the wall and into the people's hearts. And yes. You will thrive. Thrive is the name of the book. Meredith Elliott Powell is my guest on this episode of the Work Positive Podcast. Valuespeaker.com is where you want to go right now and find all kinds of Meredith goodies. Connect with her on LinkedIn and you'll be glad you did because there's some amazing posts there. Meredith, thank you so much for sharing with us today how we can create a positive work culture and thrive. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Work Positive Podcast. Please share this podcast with your friends who are HR and small business leaders so they can do one thing today to create a positive work culture that increases productivity and profits. I'd like to give you a free work positive course just for listening. It's called Something to Talk About, and it's transformed the work conversations of so many people all over the world. Get your free copy when you go to workpositive.today slash something to talk about and you can start transforming your conversations today. Remember, it pays to work positive.